and thank you very much for being here, everyone. Especially if you were here last week, because you knew that it was coming. If you didn't, weren't here last week and you're still here, thank you very much too. But um, if you did miss last week, I do want to encourage you to actually find it on our website, download it and listen to it, because I really do not have the time to actually go into the details that I did last week to build my case. I'll recap very briefly, but then I'm going to get into today's message. So what we did last week was um, I said that Jesus has um, presented an invitation to each and every one of us to have an easy yoke. Um, in other words, it is to live an abundant life or to live a joy-filled life. So the angel announcing it at the birth of Jesus. And the question I asked was, why is that not the true experience of most Christians today? Why is the testimony of our lives not that we are living in a constant um, overflowing joy welling up within us uh, you know, throughout, despite circumstances? And the sort of thing I posed was, is it because we actually misunderstood the angel or misunderstood Jesus? Or may it, could it be that actually that there is something in Scripture that we have missed? If that is not the true experience, that you've actually um, missed something, there's a clue somewhere that, for the application to our lives that would change these things that we haven't given attention to. And so um, I built my case around Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, which says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Also looked at the fact that Jesus um, had disciples and the main focus or the purpose of the disciple or his objective was basically to imitate his rabbi, to become like his rabbi. And so putting that all together, we came to the conclusion that that is in the lifestyle, that the um, secret lies of experiencing the easy yoke, and it is in adopting the lifestyle of Jesus, because we said that your life is a product of your lifestyle. And so um, Eugene Peterson put it this way, he said that the Jesus way, wedded to the Jesus truth, produced the Jesus life. But throughout our experience, often as Christians, we put a lot of emphasis on the truth of Jesus, but don't pay attention to the way of Jesus. And the way is what is important. And so my commitment to you was that this week we will explore that. We'll look at the biographies of Jesus' life, which is the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Actually, it's the story of Jesus' life and what we can learn from it. And then reading it with this intention to actually discover what his lifestyle was like, not just the things that he did, but how he did it, how he lived. And in that, pick up on what Jesus' way of life was. So I want to just also say that this whole idea of the way of life or the rule of life is something, maybe a term that you've heard um, and has come across. I've been exposed to it for quite a number of years now and I've been working, studying, looking at it, listening to many, many preachers on it and read some books about it. But a lot of the information that, that God has shaped my life was, comes out of Bridgetown Church, which is a church that John McComer used to lead in Portland, America. And I've read mainly his books and that of um, Dallas Willard. So just a disclaimer, it's not me, all this kind of things, but God has worked it into my life. And 
Um, and again, don't um, measure me and say, <laughs> if you see me not fulfilling it properly, so it just throws it all out, don't do that. That's not what it is about. The objective is not to get perfection, but to actually practice it, to live in the practice of these things. It is a lifestyle of Jesus, not laws. It's not that if you don't use sin and now it's, you know, unpardonable sin and you're going to lose salvation. It's nothing to do with it. It's a secret that Jesus has for us in how to live in the fullness and abundance of life that he has promised. Okay, so that's where we are. Great. So now, if you do look at the, um, the Gospels, these are the four core practices that you would find in Jesus' life. I give it to you up front, and then we'll motivate it. It is Jesus built his life, or his lifestyle was built on four practices. First of all, silence and solitude. Secondly, Sabbathing. Third, simplicity. And fourth, slowing down. Those are the four core practices of Jesus' life. And we'll see what they each mean. But before we get into that, just a couple of statements again. First of all, Dallas Wallard again, one of my favorite guys to quote <laughs> of late. He said he was once asked by one of the people that he was mentoring, came to him and said to him, Dallas Wallard, what can I do to become the me that I truly want to be? In actual fact, to become the me that I really believe God wants me to be. And this was his answer. He said, if you want to be the you that God has created you to be, that you deep inside of yourself desire to be, you have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That was his key. Store that somewhere. Then we see that, I don't know if you knew, but all the wisdom literature throughout the ages, as I've been told, has agreed on one thing. Whether they are secular or sacred, whether it is Eastern, Western, modern, historic, whatever it is, they agreed on this one thing. And, they, and that is that if there were to be a secret or a formula to enjoy a happy life, it would be to inhabit the moment or to be present in the moment. So in other words, it is to have an unhurried life. It's another way that you can put it, to be present in the moment. And what you'll see as I explore this, this is basically the core practice of Jesus are all there in the stuff that God has taught us, helped us, or given us to get into this lifestyle of being able to be present to the moment, to God, to people around you, to the moment. So, in... in um, one of our favorite psalms, psalm so many of you would probably be able to recite. David makes a statement in the last verse. He says, for surely, some translations, assuredly. So in other words, this is a declaration of absolute truth. It says, goodness and mercy, or kindness, or love, depending on translation, even goodness and covenantal faithfulness will follow me or even pursue me. It will chase after me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a promise. That is a declaration of truth. So if we were to say, why are we not filled with the joy that we are? Could it be that it is because God has failed in his word? I don't think so. I think it is because we are just so busy, so in a hurry 
rushing from one thing to the next that we do not inhabit the moment. And as a result, we do not actually experience the goodness that we just don't have the time to even notice it, let alone experience and let it saturate our lives. The goodness of God in every single day. No matter what, there's no preface to us. Not if you had a lot of money coming your way or hear that there's some debt or some disaster. None like that. It's not because every day there's the goodness of God around you. Are you experiencing it? So is time the problem? Or is time management the problem? Last year I spoke to an elderly lady. She's actually in her late 70s and and I was just trying to encourage her to actually have a regular quiet time with the purpose of getting back into the presence of God so that she can actually have a high view of God. That's what I said to her. Start your day with a high view of God. And you know what she said to me? And this is a lady who's got only herself and her husband to care for. They live in a small little apartment. Not much going on. Her argument with me was, I just don't have the time. How many of us says, I just don't have enough time? Well, in actual fact, God and His infinite wisdom, His omnipotence and His omniscience created the world, the whole universe, put everything just so, so that there can be a planet on which life can be sustained, that we can live. And in all of that, He set time in motion and in place. He gave us 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, 52 weeks in a year, 365 days in a year, and said, it is good. It is good. Which means everything God gives us to do and what's important, we can do in that time. So if you can't, God's not wrong, something's got to change. If you can't fit in what you have to in a day, something's got to change. You're not hearing God. You're not living in that blessing of God. As a matter of fact, the real problem is not time, because if we have more time, we will just fill it with more stuff. That is the truth. It's been experimented. It is what it is. I don't have time to go into all that, but it is so. Studies have shown it. More than that time, actually, the problem is our attention. Our attention. If you sustain, you, you see what is happening in the world, you will realize that the war that is out there over the lives of men and, men and women is for our attention. It is for our attention. Because information overload faces all of us. And it is because, I don't have my phone, it's in the car. Because of the smartphone, it is available and we just get overloaded with information all the time. Tristan Harris, he is the design ethicist, or was the design ethicist and product philosopher for Google, he said this, everything is being intentionally designed for distraction and addiction. Because that is where the money is. Everything. All the digital things of the world, apps, all those stuff. Intentionally designed for distraction and addiction, because that's where the money is. Sean Parker, he was the first president of Facebook, he said, God only knows what social media is doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these social media apps, Facebook being the first, 
is all about how do we consume as much time and conscious attention of people as we possibly can. By the way, he's become a conscious objector to social media. <clears throat> Economists calls it the attention economy. They say a company can get your money when they can get your attention. So it's all about our attention, of war for our attention, fight. So you see, friends, the smartphone or whatever device you have, it's your source of information, or making life so-called easier for you, does not actually work for you. It works for a multi-billion dollar corporation. You are not the customer, you are the product. And your time is what is for sale. Your time and your attention. And with that, your peace and your joy. We become what we give our attention to. There's a statement that says that the end of your life will be the sum total of what, of what you give your attention to. That's a massive statement. Yeah, sorry, I wanted to say this. I actually have all this available. We can, you can, um, as a uh, eldership, we thought we'll take our life groups through this. We've given some notes already to the life groups to work with it, but it's very much a, a, a framework. So if you're keen for some of the notes, I can email it to you. I lots of time to type it. I don't normally type it, but it is available. So just pop it with WhatsApp <laughs> and I'll, with your email, and I'll send it through to you so that you can really study it. So all these statements will be there as well. Many say that the end of life will be the sum total of what you give your attention to in the, at the end of your life. Your life will be the sum total. So distraction and hurry are the biggest enemies to intimacy with God, to living in this abundant life that God has got for us. Now, in case you think you are not suffering from hurry sickness, it actually is a disease diagnosed with symptoms and all. A quick test. If you get to supermarkets and you go to the checkout lanes, tools, do you make a quick calculation of which queue is the shortest and then join that one? Or worse even, while you're standing in the queue, actually make a calculation of the amount of products that's in each trolley and then shift to another line that's maybe got less products. That's me. If it is you, we all have hurry sickness. And the thing about hurry sickness is that it actually kills intimacy. It robs us of DMC, deep, meaningful conversations. It takes away innovation and creativity. It robs us of wisdom, of the true expression of love, and of many of our inner values. That's the outcome. That is what hurry does to us, hurry sickness. Now, Jesus demonstrated an unhurried life. And I wish I could take an hour to show this to you. There is so much. It's beautiful. If you look at the Gospels and Jesus, live yourself into the passages. Don't just see the actual healing that he's done or way that he's ministered, but look at the whole story around it. And you will notice that Jesus had an unhurried life. And as a result of that, he could minister to way more than just what is in front of him. For instance, what about Jesus at the end of a long day of travel, tired, hot, just wanting to have a cup of water and go to sleep, encounters a lady, a lady at a well, a lady that is of ill repute, a lady that actually he had every right as a Jew to totally ignore and act as if she wasn't even there. 
But what does he do? He engages with her. He has a DMC and rescues a lot, a whole village. Jesus had an unhurried presence. What about Jesus reprimanding the disciples for bringing the children to him at the end of a hectic, hectic ministry? Just think of Jesus, the task that was at for him to bring this gospel message to the whole world and deliverance and all these things. In the midst of it, he's tired and people want to sort of take up his time by bringing children to him. He said that it says he was indignant and said, let the children come. Takes each one of them on his lap, blesses them, ministers to them. Not like a blanket prayer, all the children and all. Not. He could have done it. Didn't. What about Jesus on his, world, on his kind of countrywide tour through the countryside of Judea? Comes across this lady, unnamed. This says in an insignificant town, maybe even a widow at Nain. He stops. Actually goes to the extent, he's got all these people following. He steps out, defiles himself, makes himself unclean to touch a corpse. But he knew it's not just this lady's child. It's her whole future and so much more. Ministers to her. Sorry. Beautiful, beautiful. There are so many others. Develop the story. Just think of the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus responding to a 911 call, as it were. Jairus is coming. My daughter is busy dying. Come, please, rescue her. On his way through, you can imagine it, through the traffic like an ambulance. And somebody touches him. He could have left her. She's healed. She received her healing. Didn't need to. But what does he do? He stops. Stops the whole procession. Quiet the crowd down. Reaches out to that lady. She's already healed. But he ministers to her. Restores her dignity, her whole being. Isn't that a beautiful life? Don't you want to live in that life? Feeling Jesus flowing through you? Touching lives around you? Not just rushing past, missing the goodness and opportunities in every moment. That's an unhurried life. That's what Jesus has come to to promise us, to offer us. But remember, that life is shaped by a lifestyle. If we get into the lifestyle, we'll get the life. Okay, I've got to move on. So, um, so then, let's go to the core practices. First one, silence and solitude. Sorry. Matthew 3, verse 16 to 4, verse 2. It says here, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the river. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay. So that word, the wilderness, is the, world, is the Greek word eremos. And eremos can be translated as wilderness, 
It can be translated as desert, as a deserted place, as a desolate place. It can be translated as a lonely place, solitary place, or a quiet place. And you see throughout Scripture how often it actually comes into the lifestyle of Jesus. We'll build around this now. So just imagine this scenario here. Here's Jesus. He's had 30 years of living as an ordinary person. Now his ministry is about his ministry is about to start. This is a launching pad. Here they are all lined up on the Jordan River. Jesus comes out of the crowd, unrecognized. Nobody knows him. Who he is actually at that point is John baptizes him. When he baptizes him, comes out of the water. There is this experience of none experienced before. Heaven opening up, a dove coming, descending on him. Everyone can see it and hear this voice from heaven thundering, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, if you were Jesus' promoter, like a fighter or something, and you wanted to get his popularity up and going, wouldn't this be the ideal moment to get Jesus to perform a couple of miracles that would stun the crowds, take on a bit of a heated debate with the religious leaders, they were also there on the banks of the river, defeat them in arguments, your popularity would soar. You would have made your day, get all the votes that's required. But what does the Holy Spirit, the promoter of Jesus, does? He leads Jesus into the Aramos for 40 days to pray and be with his Father. And then we see when Jesus was hungry and at his weakest, the devil attacks him. So we think just typical of Satan. When you're down, get the final blow. But actually, that's the way that we think it is. But could it actually be that the Holy Spirit, who was Jesus' true helper, knew that he had to face off with the devil pretty soon. So to get him as best prepared as possible in his strongest place, because remember, he did it as a man, not as God. He took him into the Aramos for 40 days. That's a thought. Mark 1. We see in Mark 1, story from verse 21 to 35, some say it's Jesus' first day on the job, whatever, however he said, it is a hectic day. Starts off with Jesus preaching to thousands of people, healing the sick, driving out demons, continuing to minister to people. At the night, in the night, the whole village, it says, comes to his house, presses around at his door. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everyone is there. Jesus, in his graciousness, ministers to all of them. And then it says, in verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place, the Aramos, and prayed. We see it many places. One other example, Luke 5, 16. It says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. What you see, friends, is that Jesus, the busier life got, the more intense ministry got, the more time he spent in the Aramos the more time he went to the Ramos. But what happens to us? When our schedules get fuller and fuller, our quiet time is often the first thing to go. Whereas for Jesus, it was the first place to go to. 
And Psalm 6, Psalm, because you see, the thing is, in the Ramos is where you come back to, your, to, to, to actually experience God and the fullness of God. You get clarity on things. You can present your issues to Him, all your wrestles. And it will just change, take on a new perspective because you get the wisdom of God. That is the testimony of so many of our lives. In the nighttime, all of these things hustling around, just go to bed. Wake up in the morning, go into the Ramos, and you'll see so much of your, of your problems will just be sorted out because you'll get innovation, creativity, you get wisdom, you get insight into situations. Not because you're so clever. God is there in the Aramos. You will meet him there, and he will minister to you. David said, in your presence is fullness of joy. This is Psalm 16, 11. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Some translations, treasures. treasures. It is in his presence and proximity to him. But you know what precedes that verse? Verse 10. And verse 10 says, You have made known to me the way of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. It's the way of life that's the secret. To get that of being creating the time to be in his presence. It doesn't just happen. You've got to get it into the way of life. So that's the Aramos. So friends, why don't you make a commitment? Just be there. Present yourself in that place with God and let him minister to you, love on you, experience him, meditate on him. You can develop that. The second practice, the Sabbath. Now, before Sabbath, I just want to share a few things on the thoughts, uh, or thoughts around desire. So desire, James 1 verse 15 says, then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Mark 4.19, it's the parable of the sower. It says, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and desires for other things come and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Romans 7 verse 5, and this is from NLT, it says, when we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. So desire is like a bottomless pit. Desire is infinite, and it can only be satisfied by something or someone that is infinite. Therefore, the only way that we can deal with desire is to put it back on the one who is infinite. And who's the only one? God. Stoicism and Buddhism tries to get you to the place to, 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 distinguish, to like get away from all desire, to detach yourself from all desire. But the way of Jesus is to put desire in its rightful place, which is back on Jesus, on the God, on the Father, the Trinity. St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Tell us what it again. It says, desire is infinite, partly because we were made by God for God. We were made to need God. In other words, only he can satisfy. We were made to need God. We were made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite and eternal and able to supply all our needs. When we fall away from God, however, the desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced. It is placed on things that can never satisfy and only leads to destruction. Now, advertising, friends. Advertising is designed to stoke the fire of desire in us. 
the whole objective of advertise is to stimulate desire. Desire for what you do not actually need, but want. And almost like an illegitimate want. Desire is completely, the desire would be dissatisfied, always wanting more. And it puts us into a constant race of trying to accumulate more and more and more because the promise out there is if you get that product, you will get what you actually really want, which is fullness of life, but it is a lie. It doesn't do it. If you just look at advertising and see everything that the picture depicts is actually a person that's living an overcoming, overfilling life. And then it says that this product will give it to you, but it's a lie. It's not the product, it won't give it to you, it just puts you deeper into chasing, rushing, hurry. Social media. Social media feeds right into this. Instagram posts, Facebook walls, you can put your things on, the Twitter feeds, all of it, all what it does. It is uh, the things where it causes us to look out for the other, the rich and famous, someone who's got better things, and it actually creates a dissatisfaction inside of us with our own state of being, which was never there if you didn't know what everybody else is doing even. So, so it stimulates evil desire, actually, and it produces a restlessness. Now, friends, is there a practice in the way of Jesus that can cure us from this growing, intensifying thing of evil desire? Of course there is. It is the Sabbath. So now the Sabbath. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means, simply means to stop. But the whole intention behind it, uh, I really don't have time to go into it, but that is what you would see if you study it from Genesis all through. The intention is to stop whatever you're busy with, simply stop, but not only to stop and behold. In creation, it was there so that we could stop our life and be captivated by this incredible creator God that has created all of this for our goodness. That's the intention, it is to stop and behold God. It is to stop and delight in God. That's what Sabbath is all about. So, um, but Hebrew, the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 4.11 says that you have to make every effort to enter that rest. So Sabbath doesn't just happen upon you. You have to be intentional about it. You have to put things in place. You have to say no to a whole lot of things, sometimes even good things. But it is worth it, friends. It is worth every so-called sacrifice that you are to make. It is absolutely worth it because in the Sabbath, the Sabbath is the primary um, um, practice of Jesus that actually created this ability to be present to the moment, this ability to live in the abundance of what God has intended for us, because we can stop and take note of it. So instead of getting hung up on whether the Sabbath is a law, it's a law that has passed away, or is it still under new covenant, and all those kind of things, just forget about it all and see the heart behind it. The heart behind it is that it comes from a loving God who knows us, who has got our every best intention at heart, and he wants to bless us. The Sabbath is blessed. There's a whole teaching on that that is so beautiful. Three things blessed in Genesis. Sabbath, a day is one after other things. It's got the ability to reproduce within us. That's what it is. Read it. Go and see. It reproduces, brings you back to the life that the week has robbed of you. It puts it back into your life if you take the time to Sabbath. So... Don't get up, caught up on legalism. Don't make it a legal thing, a legalistic thing. It's something that is meant to be life-giving. It is meant to be something that is not robbing us of life, but feeding us with life. 
So just think a little bit creative around it and start putting it in place. If a day doesn't, you know, it's very hard for you, take a time, half a day, something, but build some traditions around it for you as a family. Have it where you actually start. Start by putting away all your, your smart devices. Put them in a box, store them away, only open them when the Sabbath is over, whether it is 10 hours, 12, 24 hours, something like that, but they have a little fun around it. Be together as a family, talk, share your week, what has happened, share something, maybe a traditional special meal, something that's, you know, a different child's favorite or whatever every week, and then play some board games, share your life, get into the moment, experience the goodness of God in every moment, be attentive to it, develop something like that, go to bed, maybe all of you together, one big bed if your kids are still small or whatever. The Sabbath as a day is meant to be a day that you look forward to, that you as a family look forward to. That you miss when you, you, know, you long for it a couple of days after and then you anticipate the few days before again with great joy. That's the intention of the Sabbath. We can all do it, friends. Some way we can do it. And in that, you will start to build a rhythm, getting into the life that is truly life, the abundance and the flowing joy that God's intended for us. Simplicity. Practice number four. So just, just a couple of statements from Jesus to show that Jesus was the chief one, promoting simplicity. You may have called them crosses, it's a popular word in some circles nowadays, but hear this. So Jesus says, Luke 12, 15, he says, life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. Okay? Mark 10, he says, sell what you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. Matthew 6, 25 to 40, uh, 34, he says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food or the body more than clothes? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Statements of simplicity. What about Acts, uh, or another one? Matthew 19, 24 says, Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now friends, does all these statements kind of Gonna leave you, you know, reeling, swallowing hard, if possible. It will only be true to you if you actually truly believe that Jesus is right. And that maybe he knows more than we do. And that there is a kingdom of God that is to be explored and to be enjoyed. But Satan has been a masterful masterful in indoctrinating us with a different gospel, a gospel that says the more you accumulate, the more money you have, the more stuff you have, the happier you will be. But it is not the truth, it is a lie. And there are many studies that actually show it as well. There's a certain point where poverty gets relieved, which is good, of course it's good, but then it reaches a point where it just becomes worry. More and more do not lead to greater life. And so, so materialism. Materialism is obviously the opponent of simplicity of life. In the modern era, materialism has become the dominant system of meaning. Atheism was not what replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. We get our identity from the clothes we wear, the logos we display, the cell phone that we worship, the celebrities that we try and keep up with from the stores that we frequent, that gives us our identity. Did you know that shopping has become the one, number one leisure activity of American population, usurping the position previously held by religion? 
Interesting, isn't it? Money has become the new God. And it's not that many decades ago where the things that we owed, owned was actually fell in the category of needs and not once. It's very recently where that all changed, actually after the Second World War. And the reason why was at the end of the World War, the economy had to be rebuilt. And what the powers that be and people were saying is they said that we need to rebuild the economy, but this is our agenda. It says, to rebuild the economy by creating a culture of consumerism. That was the way. One Wall Street banker said, we must shift America from a need to a desire culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old has been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. You hear this? Man's desire must overshadow his needs. This is Paul Mazer from Lehman Brothers. Advertising has become a form of propaganda, and the goal of advertising shifted from making a product desirable because of its superior qualities. That's just the way things were advertised, to show this is better than another product because it's more durable or it's got better qualities. It shifted from that. Not from that anymore, but to appeal to the person's, not to appeal to the person's rational thinking, but their unconscious desire. So it's not to make you think this is a good buy, it's making you desire, but you just have to have it. And you will give time, energy, money, everything into it to get that, because that will make you happy, Whether, but it, of course it never does. It is to awaken and enslave uh, a desire that will enslave you. Rockefeller, well know he is, incredibly wealthy man, he was once asked, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. So friends, when you read the biographies of Jesus, do you find a way in Jesus' life that combats it? It's different. I think we do. I think Jesus' teachings on money and stuff is a clear um, sort of answer to many of these things. For example, what Jesus was doing when he was telling stories about money and stuff, he actually did not put in laws. He was simply stating the way that things are. For example, he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's Acts 20, 35. So Jesus is not putting a command that you have to give more than you receive. He makes a statement. He says, this is a simply counter-cultural counter statement, observation of Jesus, of how things actually are. The next thing it says, Jesus in Matthew 6, 24, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Again, no law. It's just a statement of fact. You cannot live in this thing of ever wanting more and have a simplistic life. A life of overcoming abundance in Jesus. The two are mutually incompatible. You have to choose. It says, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Luke 12, 15, we said alright. Already, again, no command. He is just stating that the most important things in life are not that which you can fit into a house, garage, or storage space. But like what Megs was sharing. Empty out all those things. So, what is the practical practice of Jesus that helps us with these things of simplicity? It is simplicity. Now, simplicity is not poverty. It is not trying to live with as little as possible. It is not organizing your stuff. 
because if you have to organize it, you actually have too much. What simplicity is, it is choosing to live with less than, than um, if less for the creation of space to enjoy God. That's what makes us sharing. Space to enjoy God. It is a way of accumulating and holding on to only that which you really need. Another definition is, it says, simplicity is the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts from them. Beautiful, isn't it? Now, if you want to hear Paul on it, on the whole thing of simplicity, just read 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19. And what Paul basically says there is, is, if you are rich in this world, use your wealth to bless other people. That's bottom line. Then you will be truly happy. That's what he says. Simplicity. So now, a couple of pr practical principles of how for us to be simple. These are just some ideas. You can see how it is. Before you buy, ask yourself the question, what is the true cost of this article? In other words, what is it going to cost me to actually enjoy this article? What's it going to cost me in time and in maintenance? Is it worth it? Secondly, if you're about to buy something, just sit on it for a moment. Just wait. Because remember, advertising has appealed to your unconscious desire. So let your rational thinking kick in. Just give it some time, and you'll make a better decision. Buy less, but of better quality. Good thought. Get into the habit of giving things away. If you get a new shirt, give one away. It's like that whole thing. Learn to enjoy things that you without having to own them. Like that wonderful beach cottage by the sea. You can only use it one or two weeks in a year. Much cheaper to actually just rent it all the time. Much less hassle too. Or the power cleaner of your car, or whatever that thing. If your neighbor's got one, just friend your neighbor and borrow his. You don't have to own it to enjoy it. Cultivate a deep appreciation for things that are free, like just a stroll along the beach or in a park, or actually having a good cup of coffee that you've made yourself, sitting with your wife or whoever on your favorite couch, enjoying whatever God's blessed you to view, rather than a coffee shop. Way more expensive and many other things with it too. Last one, consider to live with a budget. I'll leave it with you. Oh, that's good. This verse, even Mikey quoted it this day in worship. It says, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You know where that comes from? Philippians 4.13. Um, do you know the context? It is in the context of contentment. So Jesus, what Paul is saying there, it's not saying you've got the ability to do just whatever you, you know, faces you. It says, you have the ability to be fully satisfied, perfectly at rest, peace and joy, complete within yourself, able to uh, um, be blessed by God right here, right now, where you are, regardless of your circumstance, because God is with you, and He is for you, and He's got you covered. You just need to notice it, and you need the Ramos to notice it. Last one, slowing down. Okay, so... Ephesians 5, 16 is 15, 16 says, be very careful then how you live, not as wise, unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Now, for years I thought that that meant to cram as much into every day as you possibly can. Live 26 hours on any, every 24, that's me. Made the most, burn the candle on both ends. 
But since I've been introduced to this whole idea and started to see the easy yoke of Jesus, his lifestyle, I actually have come to realize that I was wrong with that. I now think what it actually means is slow down. It actually means slow down. It means to, to create the opportunity for you to actually experience the goodness of God every day. And with it, just that is making the most of that opportunity because it's only going to come once. You're going to, and then it's over and you can miss it. You can miss the opportunity to, to, to um, rejoice in God, to delight in Him, and to be used by Him if you can see the other person next to you. That is making the most of the opportunity. That's what I believe it is now. For 1 Thessalonians 4.11, speaking under the heading of living in a way to please God, Paul says, make it your intention or your ambition to lead a quiet life. Implication with it, if you look at it, is a life within the rhythms of his life. Not all wow, wow, big noise, lots of things doing. Wait on him. Richard Foster, I mean Richard, yeah, Foster and John Ortberg, they call this practice that enabled Jesus to be present to the moment. They said it's the spiritual discipline of slowing. And this is their definition. Listen to it carefully. <laughs> it says, cultivate this practice, cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place yourself in positions where you simply have to wait. I could say just, uh, no, I won't. <laughs> Come to South Africa. And, uh, no. Cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place yourself in positions where you simply have to wait. It's very hard for me. Don't, <laughs> don't test me on this. But um, that's what it is. And you know why? Because Orpik makes this statement. He says, biblically, waiting is not just something that you have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. Just make a study of the word wait in Scripture. Waiting on the Lord. I think you'll have pages of it. An art of waiting on the Lord. And you're not going to be able to wait on the Lord if your life is hurried always, if there's instant gratification at every need, at everything. So we need to develop wait. So sometimes God is frustrating us, causing us to wait to learn. I don't, we don't want to hear that one, but I think it's there. Because the objective of slowing down is to be present in the, in the moment, and you have to slow down your body to be able to slow down your thinking, your whole being, that you can be present. So some ideas on that. Firstly, obey the traffic rules. In other words, <laughs> when you come to a stop, don't treat it as a yield. Just stop. Don't text while you're driving, even if you have an auto cruise. The latest Volvo, I had a patient. She's doing all the emails while she's driving. Nope. Don't. Because you, that's an opportunity for you to enjoy God. Worship Him. Look at things. Enjoy things. Be there to see a person in need and stop and help them or whatever. Be present in it. Keep your phone off while you're in the Aramos. Set a time and time limits for social media. Set times for emails. Don't. Many people, I've read in these books, they actually have taken it off their phones. That emails is no longer available on their phone. There's special times. They open their laptop or whatever, and then they attend to emails. The world will not go to, come to an end if you don't answer immediately. There is time. You can do it. 
It says many have turned actually their cell phones, smartphones, back into dumb phones. Have you heard that statement? So they remove all apps that actually just simply eat up your time. And there's nothing good about it. Like news feeds. They just want to stimulate that you look more, look more. You can never come actually to the bottom of the story. They're terrible. Just take them off. So be disciplined with TV. Set limits on your entertainment intake. Single task, ladies. Single task. <laughs> Multitasking is doing a whole lot of things badly. Single task. To the point of forgetting what you're, one, one, which one you're doing. This is the way. And then this one, walk slowly. <laughs> Very hard for me. Walk slowly. Then it says, fight for a Sabbath. You'll have to fight for it. Rhythm into your life. Another is, try as best you can to take long vacations. Many of us, it's probably you just think, oh, that's impossible. But you have 15 days or whatever. Instead of breaking it up throughout the year for little bits here or there, try and take some extended times. Many studies have shown that you need days to detach from everything to start resting before you really start engaging and, and being delivered from all the things. There. But remember, no sabbatical or major holiday is going to rescue a badly lived life. Get into the right lifestyle with the rhythm of these things in there, and then that holiday will really bless you. Then there's, last thing, practice imprinting. Sorry, going a bit long. So this imprinting is, is where, you, where you hold in a moment for it to properly imprint in your being. They say that it takes three seconds for a negative thing to imprint, 14 seconds for a positive side to imprint. And what it does is if you stop and behold, like you just adore your beautiful wife for 14 seconds, and then just look at her. It says it, it actually imprints in your body, and, and with it is stored in that file, memory file, all the emotions, even the sounds, smells, everything that is there that gives you the same joy that you've experienced in that moment that you can call up again even years later and you'll experience those same things along with it. So when you see a beautiful sunset or something, celebrating a victorious moment, your child getting a prize or something, don't rush past it, imprint. Just hang there for a moment. Let it impact your life. It's such a beautiful thing to do. Develop that within your family. Stop hiking, just rushing. Just look at the scene. 14 seconds, gaze upon it. Let it imprint in your being steps your little boy takes. Behold. 14 seconds. <laughs> Good. And then, develop the art of meditating. Psalm 1. Significant that it's the first psalm. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, and seat of mockers. Basically, follow the way of the world, listen to the wisdom of the world. That's what he does. He meditates, he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. That man is like a tree planted by streams of water, leaf, he produces fruit in season, leaf does not wither. Everything he does prospers. Another translation, everything he does comes to maturity. Beautiful, isn't it? Why? Because the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. So in conclusion, friends, silence and solitude, Sabbathing, simplicity, slowing down, none of this is the objective. Jesus is. It's coming into the presence of Jesus, experiencing Jesus, living in the way of Jesus. That is what it is. So remember, practice is what it's about, not perfection. So if you fail, just do it again. 
live in the practice of it. Silence and solitude is all about coming back to God, focusing on Him, delighting in Him, being in His presence, getting His wisdom, perspective. Sabbath is cultivating a restful, grateful life, a life of ease and appreciation and celebration, worship and wonder, that's Sabbath. Simplicity is creating the freedom to focus on the things that really matter. It's not about how few things I have, it's about creating a thing to focus on what really matters. Slowing down is to create margin in your day so that you can be present in the moment, God and to people. Matthew 11, verse 18, 28 to 30, from the message says, Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Amen. Thank you. Wasn't that incredible? Can we stand together? Um, Francois, thank you. Um, thank you for the amount of work that you put in there and uh, just processing what do we do with this, you know, as a community. And there's a few moments that in, you see throughout Scripture where there, there's a significant moment for the community of God. And I feel like today is actually a significant moment for us in these last two weeks. Um, and, and it's not often, but there, throughout Scripture there would be these moments of corporate repentance. You know, and I was thinking of Jesus' first message that he preaches when he, when he gets in the Gospel of Mark, and he says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's what he says. Repent and believe the good news. And then just after that, he says, come, follow me. And uh, I feel like something of that today is, is, is part of our response. I think there's been so much that's been said that, um, for me, I know it cut me to the heart. I actually sat there and I thought, oh, Lord, um, this is for me, and I'm sure all of us in some way, shape, or form um, felt that. And um, James chapter 5 verse 16 is, a, is an amazing passage of Scripture, and it says, um, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. How's that? Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may find healing. And, and I feel actually for us as a community... There's a moment for us to repent. And I think a part of repenting is confessing. Actually, that repentance means to turn away from, from the way that I was walking in and turning back to God's way, the way that we should be walking in. And what we've been invited to here is, is to repent, is to turn away from a way of life. Uh, I just thought of that social media might have a grip on you. You know, we always think of addiction as drugs or something else, but it might be social media that's got you. It might be shopping that's got you. Actually, it's that, that materialism, that need to, to be a part of, of something or, or to have what that other person has. And it might be hurry, just generally, the shopping line. Don't we all know that one? The shopping line. And I actually felt for us that there's a corporate moment to confess. And what that means is we, 
you know, I'm not going to ask people to come forward and say what you, but I'm going to ask you to come forward. If you need to feel like you need to confess, actually, that, that in one of those ways, I actually need to turn away from it, and I need to turn back towards God. I want to invite you to the front here. Just, just come forward, and, um, and actually, let's confess to one another, and, and then I'm going to pray for us as a community. Just come forward. There's a whole space here. Actually, I don't even mind if the whole church comes forward, because, because I think part of it is, is us saying to God, Lord, I, this is me. I've actually been out of your way, and I want to turn back to your way. And part of it is, is saying, actually, this is, just come forward. We can go wide all the way across, and let's just take a moment to, to repent to God. You can even just spread across the side, even if it's a bit tight up here, but, but I think this is good. We, what we're doing here is we, we're actually applying Scripture. We're saying we're confessing to each other that we haven't been walking in God way. And, uh, and actually, it's a joy that we get to find healing from this. You can just move forward, a little bit more forward here. You can spread out wide if you need to. And um, this is good. Take a look around, actually. Let's take a look around. These are our brothers and sisters. There's nobody, this isn't like a, a weird moment. This is a beautiful family moment, actually, where we're confessing to one another that we've been out of God's way and that we, in a sense, are being accountable and saying, Lord, we want to walk in your way. We want to walk in the way that you've got for us. Because I love that Jesus says, repent. And that's what we're just going to do. We're going to take a moment. And Lord, I, I'm here. I'm included in this. I, re- I repent, Lord. I confess to you. We confess to you that we have not been walking in the best way that you have for us, Lord. And we want to say that we're sorry, Father. We're sorry for our, our, our addictions to things that are worthless, actually, Lord. They, they hold no value. They waste our time, they waste our mind space, and we, we say sorry, Lord. And we, we want to turn away from that, from social media. I ask that you would, that you would um, help us, Father. We, we know that we are weak. We are extremely weak. And I pray that, that part of our repentance is turning away. And would you, would you help us with this, Lord? Would you empower us to, to say no, to stop scrolling, to put our phones down, to put them away? Pray for those who have this constant need to shop. To, to buy things, to spend, to keep up with other people, that pressure like we're not satisfied. Lord, we, we say we're sorry for that, Lord, for running up credit cards and for continuing to spend our money unwisely. Lord, we say we're sorry. Would you forgive us, Jesus? Would you forgive us, Lord, of that? And I pray for those who, and us who are, are completely hurried all the time. We feel like there's this constant pressure to have to do and be and achieve and to tick off lists and we're sorry for that, Lord. Sorry for being so task-orientated rather than being with you, enjoying you, being in the moment, as we've just so heard about so beautifully today. We're sorry, Lord. We repent. We want to turn away from that, and we want to turn back towards you. And our, part of this is us as a community. We want, to, we want to live in the full life that you have for us, Lord. And the second part of repentance is believing, is taking hold of, is, is holding on to your truths. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for us as a community, would you continually remind us of the truths of God at every moment where we feel tempted or, or pressured. Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would come and remind us of your truths, of your life-giving word, that we would be able to, to walk into the fullness of the life that you have for us, Lord. We believe your word. Would, we, would you give us wisdom in the mornings to, to store your word in our hearts, Lord, that we would obey your commands, that we would live in the full life that you have for us, God. 
ask you for that, Lord. And then that beautiful invitation to come and follow you. Lord, we as your church, we want to follow you. We know that this is not going to be easy and we know that we won't be perfect in it. But Lord, we as a community, we, we step into the practice of being with you, Jesus. Being like you, Lord. Silence and solitude, creating space. The wilderness moments where you can come and speak to us, God. Simplicity, Lord, where we can put you above all, Lord, our ultimate value and make our decisions in line with that, Father. Ask you for that, Lord. Sabbathing, God, to take time to be alone as a family and enjoy you, to stop, just to stop and to be with you, Lord. I pray, would you, would you help us through the week of doing this, Lord, and slowing down, God. Oh, Lord. And it says that when we do this, we find healing. And I ask you now, Holy Spirit, you come and heal us. I know there's all the science behind everything, but we know that you're a supernatural God. And in a moment, you can heal us of these addictions. You can heal us, Lord, as well as, as, as bring us into a lifestyle that is healthy and holy, Lord. Pray for a significant change for us as a church today. We ask you for that, Lord. Pray that we would make the changes. I pray for a radical following after you. It's going to make, mean decisions and choices. And we as a church, we want to do that, Lord. Would you come and do that in us, Lord, as a community? Thank you for this moment, Lord. Heal us, Father. And part of our response is, Francois, I felt for us to play a song, and um, it's not for us to necessarily worship to, but just to watch and, and actually um, continue this moment that we're in right now. Um, so if you can just play that, please, Pan. Stay with me. 
Yeah. 